Let us pray. Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and that the words of my mouth might be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So this morning I did something that I haven't done in a really long time. I sent electronic valentines to my family, to my friends, and to my loved ones, as well as to my pastoral staff. I sent them all the same valentine, which was just a picture of a pink candy valentine heart that said, remember, you are dust. You see, I'm not really into celebrating Valentine's Days these days, though Leah, I do love you. Um, In fact, each year I typically am the guy who takes great delight in offering my sardonic corrective to the sentimentality of this day by posting an icon of the real Saint Valentine that reads, I was beaten with clubs, beheaded, buried under the course, the cover of darkness. I was disinterred by my followers, and you commemorate my martyrdom by sending each other chocolates. All to, all to say, today is a really odd day, is it, is it not, right? For Christians around the world, today is a day filled with confession. It's a day filled with penance, with fasting, and the visible sign of our remembrance of our creaturehood, that is, the limits of our lives, the remembrance that we are dust and that death is imminent. It is a time for self-reflection. It is a time for self-examination. It is a time and a season full of self-denial. And although the sentimentality of February 14th is rife, Let's be honest, our culture has no idea what to do with a day that celebrates the fact that we are all sinners and we're going to die. Such realities as this, especially the reality of the practice of self-denial that hopefully is a way of life for us in Christ, it runs counter to a culture and society, it runs counter to a world that is consumed with the self that is consumed with autonomy, which is self-law, that is consumed with self-ego and a thirst for more self, a thirst for freedom of the self from the other, both God, who is holy other, and others. Our culture, our world thirsts for this type of freedom, freedom from rather than freedom for the other. In fact, it's not too far of a stretch to say that we are even drunk with freedom to the point that we are on the edge of self-destruction by our own thirst for more autonomy, for more ego, for more control of our freedom from God and freedom from others. Our pursuit of these things has resulted in so much individual and societal anxiety, so many divisions and conflicts, so many tensions between our neighbors. And our desire to be autonomous, our desire to be free from, has led to apathy, it has led to the lack of care for and the exclusion of others. Rather than accepting our give, our lives as gift, rather than accepting our lives as gift, 
of being for and belonging to one another, namely God, his body, the church, and others, too often we strive even greater for self-reliance and independence. And it is in our pursuit to be autonomous, to be self-reliant and independent, I want to say we are becoming less human. And this reality is not exclusive to modern culture. It reappears in every age and in every culture. In fact, it is the very issue Isaiah prophetically condemns in our Old Testament lesson today in Isaiah 58. Throughout this passage, Isaiah exposes what is a socially accepted practice that was the product of an incorrect understanding of what was considered good. The culture Isaiah lived in, especially the religious culture of his day, incorrectly believed that the good was defined in line with some strict ritualism, that is, religious observance, which unfortunately came at the expense of the other. As we see in verses 3 through 5, Why have we fasted, they say, and you, Lord, have not seen it? Why? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you, God, have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strifes and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I, the Lord, has chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? So the people to whom Isaiah addresses believe that religious observance, activities of fasting, prayer, and other forms of worship were not only good in and of themselves, but they pursued them. They believed that these forms of worship were somehow mutually exclusive from social righteousness, by which I mean concern for the other, the oppressed, the widespread injustice, the then prevailing poverty in the land, as evidenced not only in the verses just read, but in the subsequent verses of 6 through 10. Is not this the fast that I, the Lord, chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say to you, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. In the Old Testament, God's chosen people were to point forward to the coming king. 
They were to foreshadow what this king would be like. In fact, God throughout Scripture gives his people numerous commands instructing them to care for the oppressed and the afflicted and the poor. The fast that he has chosen for his people. In Exodus 23, verses 10 through 12, the Sabbath guaranteed a day of rest for the slave and alien. In Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 18, the Sabbath year canceled debts for families, allowed the poor to glean from the fields, and set slaves free as well as equipping slaves to be productive for themselves. In Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 55, the Jubilee year emphasized true freedom and liberty. It released slaves and returned land to its original owners. Other laws about debt and tithing and gleaning ensured that the poor would be cared for each day of the year. Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 19. The commands were so exhaustive. They were so extensive that they were designed to achieve the ultimate goal of eradicating poverty among God's people. There should be no poor among you, God declared in Deuteronomy 15.4. Unfortunately, the people of God did not fulfill its task, and thus they were sent into captivity. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought Israel was sent into captivity because my Old Testament professor said that it was all those oppressive nations who fought and won, or because of their idolatry. Yes, but there are other reasons, vital ones, that are repeated over and over throughout numerous passages in the Old Testament where the people of God appears to be characterized by personal piety and the outward expressions of formal religion, worshiping and offering sacrifices, celebrating religious holidays, fasting and praying, but God was more displeased and more infuriated over Israel's failure to care for the poor and the oppressed. God wanted his people to loose the chains of injustice. God wanted his people to clothe the naked, not just attend Sunday morning and evening services, and especially not a midweek Lenten service. God wanted his people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and not just sing hymns and praise music week after week. You see, personal piety and formal worship are essential to a life of worship, but they must, they must lead to lives that act justly and love mercy, Micah 6.8. Throughout Holy Scripture, there is an inextricable relationship between a religious observance and genuine righteousness. But God's people then, and dare I say, we too now oftentimes fail. We fail to see the joyful and the hopeful reality of how the practices and forms of worship require the whole of our lives, not just 40 days of purpose or 40 days of fasting once a year. If I may be a bit more provocative, what does a little abstinence matter if one can retain their basic lifestyle of disobedient rebellion against the moral demands of God. 
How many of us are like the people whom Isaiah addresses? People who have been eagerly anticipating Lent because we get to control the minor inconveniences we want to endure by giving up one or maybe a few first world amenities over the next 40 days of our life. Is our fast the fast God has chosen for us? Is your fast the fast God has chosen for you? In chapter 49 of the rule of St. Benedict, St. Benedict writes, the life of a monk ought to be a continuous Lent. Was this not the fast God chose for his people? Is this not the fast God has chosen for us? What is being implied here is that I believe it is abundantly clear that the ecstatic reality of fasting and all other practices of worship are essentially about giving one's whole life to God. And that this reality is abundantly witnessed when we know how to perceive God's presence in our lives and in the life of the world. This is the crux of the passage, is it not? To give up not only those aspects of life that for us have become idols at times, like the ritual piety among the people of God in Isaiah 58, but also the attempt to control the measure of our devotion to God. The fast God has chosen for us is a fast that can only be characterized as the Lenten life in which we are called to let go of control, to fast with trust in God's mission, vision, and God's will for our lives. Isn't this the life to which we are called in Christ? That through God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ and through the power and presence of God's Holy Spirit, the church is more than just a sneak preview of King Jesus. The church is the body of Christ, the bride, the very fullness of Jesus Christ. When people look at the church, they should see the very embodiment of Jesus Christ. When people look at the church, they should see the one who declared in word and in deed to the leper and to the lame and to the poor that his kingdom is bringing healing to every speck of the universe. When people look at the church, they should undeniably see the radical nature of relationship between our religious worship and our social concern. That is to say, when people look at the church, they should see our love for God and our love for others. When people look at the life of the church, they ought to see a people willing, a people ready and already in pursuit of spending their Lenten lives on behalf of others, particularly those who are marginalized, excluded, and in our in desperate need. So I think it's vital to note that spending one's life, right, on behalf of the other, it entails a lot more than just doing things for others. Often, if not always, it requires remaining present with and being present for the other. So what might this actually mean for us? 
What might this mean for the church in one of the most multi-ethnic cities in the world where the majority demographic is made up of immigrants, refugees, and minorities? A good portion who have fled from oppression, injustice, and extreme conditions of poverty. What might this mean for all of us, for all the churches represented in this chapel here today, especially in relation to the exploding population where it is becoming increasingly difficult for so many to afford basic necessities for life? What does this mean for the church in a city impacted by a 30% increase of self-harm among youth? A 40% rise in mental illness among adults, food insecurity, a lack of access to health care, and a rising next generation that believes they do not have a future. What might this mean for us, the church, and for us church leaders in our churches where we know there are members who are going through extreme depression, doubt, and stress because of an illness, suffering, unemployment, or just rat relational hell with someone else? These are actual questions I'm asking myself this Lent as I pray about the fast that the Lord has chosen for me, as I pray about the fast that the Lord has chosen for Christ the King, as I pray about the fast the Lord has chosen for His church. And my prayer, my prayer for the church and for us is that we would be the Lenten body that God has called us to be. That we would live into the fast that God has chosen for us and that we will seek to listen and to remain responsive and participate in the life of the one who gives us life, Jesus Christ. That we would in some way or another participate in the bread of life that gives bread of life to the life of this world. So my prayer is that we might be the people who trust in God for our nourishment, knowing that the attempt to live by the bread of our own making is our own death. So let me conclude where I begin. Happy Valentine's Day. Remember that you are dust. And remember that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.